everybody. I'm DJ Gagnon, here with my co-host with the most, Mark Rossetti. Yes, what's up, everybody? And uh, we're joined this week by a uh, friend of the show and a uh, personal friend of each of ours, uh, Nick Tenaglia. Hey, what's going on? Happy to be here. Can I just say how happy I am that the Italian quotient has doubled in this show? <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I guzzled a gallon of maple syrup just to make up for it. Oh, it's okay. I literally have an IV of marinara hooked up to me right now, so <laughs> I'm just mainlining it. <laughs> but yeah, we, uh, we're coming back at y'all with uh, part two of Formula One and Whiskey, and we wanted to get a new fan's perspective this week, uh, which is going to be really exciting. But before we get into that, uh, Mark, what you been up to this week? I've spent way too much fucking money in the last 48 hours. <laughs> <laughs> Same here. <laughs> uh, no, you know... Yesterday, as we record this, was the 4th of July, and as a historian and as a redneck, I really enjoy that holiday, so uh, we had a barbecue, I went over to my parents' house, we had loads of pyrotechnics, still have all my fingers and toes, so, you know, whoever, whoever had the over-under on 10, you know, you win the pool. Uh, but spent, you know, spent a couple hundred bucks there. And then today I went and got a new phone and I have one of the new folding Samsungs and I just, I absolutely love it. It can do so much, but it's just a precious little baby and it will break if you just look at it the wrong way. Yeah. I, um, I can't believe you bought that for yourself. How many, uh, PS4 slash PS5 controllers have you shattered? Um, uh-huh. I'm still working <laughs> off my original PS4 controller, bro. You know, you know what we call that? We call that not trying hard enough, don't we, Nick? <laughs> it's full uh, of fucking I, rookie numbers. I, I've only broken Xbox controllers. My PlayStation ones are all intact. Yeah, but boom. you have broken Xbox controllers, so that's okay. I have, I have yeah. Uh, what about you, DJ? What did you do? I was a pretty great week. We uh, did some more fruit picking this weekend. Uh, 9 a.m. on fucking Saturday. No, uh, yeah. I don't want to do that. No, yeah, no. We went cherry picking with some friends. They, uh, my buddy recommended eight thirty in the morning, and I was like, "Hey, he's I have not an idea. your friend. How about stop we, hanging out with him? How about we grab flashlights and do midnight cherry picking? Because then I'll be in for it." Uh, but no, I talked him down to nine. It, it was actually, it was a good idea because um, right as we were finishing and bought everything and. We're in the cider house was when it started downpouring. So I guess silver linings, we, we got to miss most of the rain. But uh, I, too, also spent way too much money this weekend. Uh, my buddy Ryan in front of the show came over this weekend, and he and I played some Magic the Gathering, and then we looked up what it would cost to go in for some booster boxes for the new Magic the Gathering uh, Adventures in the Forgotten Realms set that's coming out later this month. It's the big D and D crossover into MTG. So uh, we've been following all the spoilers for six months. We're both really excited, and I may have dropped over two hundred dollars on Magic pre-orders. Now you see, Nick, this is a very you should be honored right now Why because is that? you are not only going to be the last guest on The Wit and Whiskey, this is the last episode. <laughs> <laughs> so my co-host just admitted live on air that not only did he pre-order Magic the Gathering boxes, he pre-ordered Magic the Gathering boxes with a friend for the D&D crossover. Do you think he called me? <laughs> do, you think, do you think he said, hey, Rossetti, you're drunk and out of control spending money. Do you want in on this? No, he didn't. Hey, so <laughs> I was looking out for your well-being because if I told you that this set was coming and we were pre-ordering right before you spent all that money on fireworks, Annie would kill you and we wouldn't be recording today. I honest to be fair, you may have a point, but I honestly don't know what she would have been more upset about. She wasn't, <laughs> she wasn't crazy about the fireworks, to be honest with you. <laughs> so I but all right, I guess I'll let it go. But I want to hear all the, the goody details. You gotta follow up with us when they come in. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm gonna save them all. My goal is to collect all the full art monster cards that have D D stats on the back. So uh, I'll let you know what I get and I'll take some fun pictures and uh, maybe when they, they come out, we can do a Magic and Whiskey episode and talk about Magic the Gathering and just Fuck go down yes. that rabbit hole. 
Um, but other than that, uh, it's uh, Holly's birthday today. Uh, so let and me... you're here recording. You're we're both gonna get divorced. Yeah, no, no, no. We we, we spent the day. Uh, so uh, we we took her up to the White Mountains and we did the Cog Railway up uh, Mount Washington. So uh, we we went with her parents and and it was just a ton of fun. We got to go see just the top of a mountain that I have lived in the state for 33 years and never been to. So. Uh, that was amazing, and we, uh, you know, got dinner and got ice cream and and did all sorts of awesome stuff. So uh, if anybody is out there and is thinking about skiing or checking out, you know, northern New Hampshire, uh, I highly recommend you know the scenic or cog railways up there. It's a lot of fun. And happy birthday to Holly! You know, as the old timers down the racetrack used to tell me, it applies to you too, DJ. You outkicked your coverage with that one. Oh, I definitely did. <laughs> uh, I, I know what I did. Uh, so yeah, no, it was it was a great weekend. How about you, Nick? Has uh, has your week been? Yeah, what you doing, Nick? Oh my goodness, it's been uh, it's been pretty uneventful actually, because uh, the bad weather here in Massachusetts, all the rain over the, the long weekend, we didn't really do much. Um, Actually, my wife gave me the weekend off, pretty much. Uh, she took the kids uh, blueberry picking. Uh, we, we did spend today at the beach for a couple hours, but then you know, the girls had play dates, and uh, they stayed pretty active. But uh, I actually watched a lot of F1 Drive to Survive. I caught up uh, pretty much all the way up to uh, kind of the, the most recent episode. Well, that's good, because we're going to be talking about that a lot in the second half of today's show. I was prepared. The man did his homework. <laughs> I love it. Well, I really want to get to talking about Formula One because it's a very easy topic for me. I just sit back till the end. Uh, but uh, before we get into that, uh, Nick, what are you drinking this week? We're going to put you on the spot. Oh, I am drinking some Buffalo Trace in the most American way possible out of a mason jar. <laughs> nice. Well, see. This is great, because I have reviewed Buffalo Trace, but DJ has not. So we need a second opinion on it, Nick. What, 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 tell us about it. What do you like? What don't you like? Oh, it's delicious. Um, I don't know. It's not. It's, I don't know, it's just, it's, it's, just an, it's an easy daily driver. I mean, not that I drink every day, but like I could drink it any time, hot, cold, on the rock, straight up. You can mix it in with anything. Like it's, I, I like it. It's nice and smooth. It's not too, you know... Uh, smoky or like harsh on the tongue it's it's nice it's easy that's awesome you got another vote for buffalo trace there so we're we're, we're two oh and one because we have two four <laughs> none against and then one that's abstained so yeah yeah so i'll have to add it to my repertoire that's awesome nick uh mark what about you what are you drinking this week well i realized over the course of this weekend that i have started to acquire through no effort of my own that I can recall, an alarming amount of nips. You know, just a little, as they used to call them, the airplane bottles of booze. And most of them are whiskey, so I said, well, every now and then we'll rotate one of them into the equation, and it's, you know, decent shot and a half or whatever it is. So this week, uh, first one I pulled out was Woodford Reserve, Ooh. which I have not reviewed yet, but did you in one of our earlier seasons? No, I, I abstained from it because I tried it. A, a friend had me try some, and I, it felt like I was chewing on wood chips, and I, it, it was too much for me. So, Indeed, indeed. Now, uh, it's 90 proof for those of you playing the home game. It has no age statement. We don't know how old it is. Uh, uh, if you buy a normal bottle, it's about $35, $40, give or take. And I actually was able to look up the mash bill for this. It's 72% corn, 18% rye, and 10% barley. So we like our ryes here. And, uh, you know, it's pretty good. It's actually pretty light on the nose when you start off. It's almost like sort of sweet on the nose. And then when you drink it, man, it, it hits you. Like you said, the wood chips, they definitely hit you. You get the, the rye. You get the oak. You almost get a darker wood, like not like a mahogany, maybe like a cherry or something like that. There's definitely a second wood after it. And then it finishes with more oak, a little bit of pepper, and almost like a leathery taste, which I could see why you don't like this, but I enjoy it. <laughs> Just, you know, it tastes like the old West in manliness. 
<laughs> so, you know, and it is the official drink of the Kentucky Derby. We keep coming back to the Kentucky Derby in season three for whatever reason, but it is the official drink of the Kentucky Derby. For neither so. of us who actually has ever ridden horses that I know of, so... I rode a horse once. I was three when I did it, but I did it. Yeah, I mean, we've uh, all had pony rides, Mark. That doesn't count. Eh. Either way, Woodford Reserve, it's pretty good. So we're, we're one up on the nips. We're, you know, random draw for the nips. So far, so good. Nice. Take us home. What are you drinking? Uh, so I pulled, I also pulled a nip, uh, one of my sampling vials this week. Uh, and I looked for anything. I'm fucking desperate to not drink scotch again for the next three episodes. <laughs> for fuck's sake, guys. Even when I thought I was safe and I went back to my, my tried and true routes of, of Irish whiskeys, it was fucking peated. So now, now, Nick, we, we should bring Nick up to speed. Our list, DJ hates, as he calls it, bog water. He hates scotch. He hates anything that's, you know, mossy and peated. So our listeners have made it their personal goal to have DJ drink as many mossy and peated <laughs> drinks as humanly possible. And, like, I love a good Speyside scotch. Give me your Glen Livets and your Glen Morangies and your Balvenies. I'm happy. But, no, I keep fucking... Uh, if I have one more fan tell me to tr- drink Lagavulin, I'm going to rip my hair out. Send the bottle of Lagavulin to me. I will make sure he gets it, and I will make sure he drinks it. <laughs> <laughs> so instead this week, I went about as far away from peat bogs as I could possibly get, and I am drinking uh, Balcones Texas Single Malt Edition uh, American Whiskey. And it's pretty good. It is deep and dark, and it it's like the color of a like a dark chocolate like leather couch. Like it's just, it, it's I, I can barely see the whiskey stones in my glass, um, and it's good. Uh, you know my criteria for a good whiskey, Mark. It definitely hits the tips of my ears. Uh, it, it's got spice notes and pepper notes um, when you. When you uh, smell it, you're getting a lot of fruits. It's sweet. There's some. There's weirdly some, but like botanicals. Definitely a lot of citrus. It smells really good. Uh, and then you drink it, and it just kicks your ass. Like it's just it, you get the pepper. Uh, the The tasting notes on their website say nothing about spice. Uh, this it's got some pepper in it. I, I, I don't know if maybe that wood just came from a pepper field or something. I have no idea. But it, it's there's definitely some strong pepper notes in this. So I initially didn't like it, but I, it's growing on me as I sip. I am noticing a trend. You know, you reviewed Few back, I think, in season one it was. And you like that. And this is the second quote-unquote American that you really enjoy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I... It, it, it is definitely Texas. Like, it's big and it's brash and it's dark and it's loud, but uh, it, it's good. So if anybody's looking for, for a kind of a specialty whiskey that, honestly, I think this would be great in the winter. Uh, you know, something to kind of pep you up a little bit. Uh, but it isn't going to be your daily driver. It's uh, $70 a bottle. Uh, it is 106 proof, so, you know. That's why you like it the more you drink it. Yeah, <laughs> drink responsibly, folks, but uh, no, it's great. I, I definitely recommend it. So uh, Balcones Single Malt Whiskey, it's their Texas Single Malt Edition. Well, all right, I like it. I'm all about it. I'll have to add that to the list. Definitely do. What do we get for whiskey news this week, bro? Well, just a quick one. Uh, I believe it was back at the end of season two. We talked about the oldest known bottle of whiskey uh, that was linked to the Rick LaGrange distillery. Uh, it was from right around the Civil War era, a little bit afterwards, completely unopened. And go back and listen to the tape, because they were saying that it was going to be between 25000 and 50000 for the auction range. And if you go back and listen to whatever episode that was, which I can't remember off the top of my head, I said, that's bullshit. That's going to go for a lot more than that. <laughs> and wouldn't you know who won the pony? It was auctioned off last week for $110,000. Jesus. Plus buyer and seller commissions on top of that. So uh, th- is this, th- this is the whiskey that they really shouldn't open and try to drink, right? 
I mean, the bottle is apparently sealed. They were able to discern the age by extracting a small amount of the cork and a small amount of the liquid with a syringe. So they have technically not broken the wax seal. Uh, I don't know whether or not it's going to be uh, open because I can't tell you who the buyer is because the auction house refuses to identify the buyer due to privacy concerns, which I suppose. But the good news is, you know, on 4th of July weekend, the bottle is staying home. The bottle is staying in the U.S. Oh, awesome. Actually, I take that back. It was even earlier. I'm looking at the, the sheet now. It was dated from between 1763 to 1803. Nice. So right around the time of our forefathers. Yes. Um, which, again, is really fitting for Independence Day. I didn't plan this at all, actually. I just saw it pop up on my feed. Uh, <laughs> but so, yeah. So I called it. It went for over double what they were predicting. I knew it would. I've been to a lot of auctions. I've been drunk at a lot of auctions. I don't recommend <laughs> it. Uh, and so there we go. There's our little follow-up on the oldest known bottle of whiskey. And hey, salute to whoever bought it. Good Amazing. on you. Amazing. All right, what do you got for tools of the trade? Uh, I thought I'd do a quick one this week. Uh, pretty basic for anybody who's uh, been doing some cocktail stuff at home. I want to talk about simple syrups. Oh, okay. Uh, pretty easy stuff, right? So there's... A billion different kinds of simple syrup that you can make. But the basic recipe for a simple syrup is uh, one-to-one sugar and, and water. Very easy. You heat it up on the stove until all of it's dissolved. You let it cool. You pop it in a bottle. You can use it. I, I, I think they say uh, it'll keep in the fridge for like three to six months. But uh, honestly, a- after that, it just starts crystallizing a little bit. So shake it up. You're still good. Um, but the cool thing about simple syrup is you can you can change the recipe, you can tweak it here and there, and you can do a lot of really interesting things with your cocktail game. Uh, so if you replace the sugar with honey, and uh, you can cut the honey back a little bit to reduce the sweetness because honey is a little bit thicker than normal sugar, um, but you can make a honey syrup, and that's really good for any uh, tea-style cocktails or for hot toddies, uh, things like that. Um, if you want to keep the recipe the same, but you want more of a rich simple syrup, it's called a rich simple syrup. Uh, you can switch the recipe up to two to one sugar, more sugar than water. Uh, and that gives you, it's really a syrup, like normal simple syrup, one to one. It's got the consistency of water, a rich simple syrup. It is a syrup. It, It takes a little bit more to dissolve, but, uh, that's great for cocktails where you don't want to water it down. You want to, you want to get the sweetness quickly, but you don't want to add a bunch of water to your cocktail. So rich, simple syrups are great for that. And from there, the sky's the limit. Um, I have made uh, dozens of different simple syrups over the years. Um, technically, uh, grenadine is a form of simple syrup. Uh, you're, you're doing uh, sugar and orange peel and, and um, pomegranate juice instead of uh, water, uh, but it's basically the same recipe. You're, you're just changing the flavor profile a little bit. Uh, if you want to make your own grenadine, highly recommend it. It tastes completely different than the stuff you get in the store. Uh, the stuff you get in the store is generally kind of pseudo cherry flavored, uh, but real grenadine is a, is a lot deeper of a red, and it's made with pomegranate juice. Uh, I'm counting it as a simple syrup. Uh, and then you can take it even a step further. There's a lot of really great craft cocktails that use uh, tea syrups. Uh, my, one of my favorite tequila cocktails is called the Time Lapse, uh, and it requires a Lapsang Souchong tea syrup. Uh, and tea syrups are really easy. Uh, if you've got some loose leaf tea, you just make a one-to-one simple syrup, and then as soon as the sugar is dissolved, you take it off the heat and you dump in a bunch of tea leaves, and you just let it sit for like an hour or two. Just let it steep. And then you strain out all the tea leaves and you have a tea syrup. And you can do that with a lot of things. Uh, anything that you can infuse into liquor, you can infuse into a simple syrup. You can do spiced syrups. I've seen cinnamon simple syrups. I've seen pumpkin spice simple syrups. Um, you can do all sorts of crazy stuff with fruits. Uh, you can you know, do a... Um, like a lemonade-style simple syrup. So if you want to sweeten iced tea and kind of turn it into a little bit of an Arnold Palmer, you can do that. Uh, so I highly recommend it. Uh, it's super easy to make. It doesn't take much. 
Um, and if you want to kind of keep it on hand, uh, I think I bought for like 15 bucks online a two-pack of those squeeze bottles. Uh, you can get them from OXO. And I paid a little bit extra so I could get the little tabs that cover the tops. Um, so none of your fridge flavors or, or weirdnesses going on in your fridge get into your bottle. But it's really good. Uh, so I highly recommend Simple Syrups to kind of amp up your, your cocktail game and uh, amp up your, you know, even if you want to have iced coffees in the summer, we're getting into those really hot months. Uh, this is a great way to sweeten your coffee without ending up with a bunch of granulated sugar at the bottom of it. This is the part of the show, Nick, where I make DJ squirm. I just buy simple syrup at the store. <laughs> what, what about you, Nick? Don't. Uh, I actually make my own. Yeah. Oh. For fuck's sake, you Philistine. Yeah, it's, oh. it's, it's pretty easy. And you mentioned the cinnamon. I, I actually will add cinnamon to my simple syrup and uh, make it uh, old fashions with it. Oh, yeah, it's great. So easy. Uh, if you want to amp that up a little bit, try using some brown sugar instead of regular sugar. And you can oh, get yeah. the molasses in there with the cinnamon. Super good. That's a really good idea. Yeah. Now, I will say, and I'm not actually saying this just to troll you. There is a point to this. You, you made a good point about store-bought grenadine. Yes. And you're correct. However, for certain cocktails, and the one that I'm thinking of uh, right off the top of my head is the Alabama Slammer. They taste noticeably different without the store-bought grenadine to the point where bartending people will notice and they will comment. People are so used to store-bought grenadine for certain cocktails. I mean, I guess, but you're talking about an Air Alabama Slammer, man. Oh, God, I'm sorry. You know, welcome to the bougie hour. I thought we were bougie last week, and we were, but God damn. I mean, sure, but, like, it's it's... It's amaretto and, and southern comfort, dude. That's it's it's not exactly a julep. No, but I mean, it's a big money drink at a bar, and you know, see, you have a bartending license, but you've never actually bartended. No, no, you're right. I'm. Totally, you've never had to deal with the angry customer I'm, at the I, other I, end. I can be bougie here. Yeah, I I I think that much like. I'm I'm giving Mark crap here, but you know to right. kind of end off tools of the trade this week, uh, there are cocktails that were made in like the '80s uh, that used a lot of like sour mix, roses, lime juice, uh, you know, store bought grenadine, and those cocktails are not well balanced when you swap out those core ingredients. Yep. with fresh juices or fresh-made simple syrups or fresh-made... Um, if you make a, uh, a vodka gimlet and you use fresh lime juice, it is not a gimlet because a gimlet's really meant to be made with Rose's lime. So uh, if you are going to make a bespoke vodka gimlet, you have to actually make a simple syrup with lime juice. You, you can't just use straight lime juice in place of Rose's lime. And it's the same thing with the Alabama Slammer. I mean, it's meant to be, it's, it's kind of one of those 80s style cocktails that required those over the, the counter, uh, you know, in the bottle ingredients that you would get instead of the, the homemade ones, you know, that were made back in like the, you know, 50s or the 20s. So uh, I, I, I am poo-pooing it because I like giving Mark shit. But yeah, it, it, there's there is a time and a place for homemade grenadine, and yes. I I would agree. An Alabama Slammer probably should not have homemade grenadine. As much as we like to bust each other's balls, DJ and I actually have been working on the research for an episode all about cocktail culture and how the '80s killed it. Yeah, uh, and that if that doesn't make this season, it probably will very early in next season because it it really is actually a fascinating topic. I mean, we give each other a lot of shit over it, but it is amazing how much cocktails have evolved uh, from the fifties to the eighties, and then from the eighties until now. I mean, just two two thirty thirty five year periods. It's incredible. Yeah, and I mean, it, it, it's kind of crazy because it all goes in waves, right? Like prohibition fucking killed cocktail culture. Yep. And, like, made us poison ourselves for a generation. And then we got some really great cocktails in the 50s. The 80s just, again, fucking killed cocktail culture by making everything hyper-efficient. 
so everybody was getting these off-the-shelf syrups. Everybody was using pre-made sour mix. And the, the, the ratios, the acid to sugar to, to liquor ratios in these cocktails, they, they went off the fucking walls. Uh, so in order to make some of those 80s-style cocktails with fresh ingredients, you really have to work at it. I remember when I first started making cocktails like two years ago, and I was like, oh, yeah, I want to make like a mudslide. And I, I, there was an ingredient in it that was like, go get this chocolate liqueur or something like that and I didn't have it and I was like oh chocolate syrup and vodka is going to be enough right no so there's just some 80s cocktails that had those like efficiency gains that now that we're in the you know the the 2020s and over the last 10 years we've had that cocktail revolution happening uh, where a lot of fresh ingredients are coming back all of those old style cocktails from the 80s have to be rebalanced because you can't just take a fresh ingredient and swap it in. So there you have it, folks. Uh, as, you know, simple syrups—they're not actually all that simple. No. Don't listen. <laughs> don't listen to me. You know, I am a crotchety old man. As, as much as I love to play the role here uh, as, as the angry white guy, DJ and Nick are actually one hundred percent correct on this. <laughs> yeah, it, I definitely urge you to try and make your own simple syrup, especially that we're. We're in the the season of sun teas and iced teas and hyper-concentrated iced coffees. Go make yourself a simple syrup. Don't go to Dunkin's or Starbucks and order straight sugar and have it just accumulate at the bottom of your glass. It melts easier. It's so much better. It, it, it balances out even non-alcoholic drinks way better. Now, see, so here's where I... Oh, go ahead, Nick. Sorry, Starbucks does actually use simple syrup in their iced coffees. They do, and I love Starbucks for it. Duncan yeah. does not. I was going to say, this is the point in the show when I normally would argue with you, because iced coffees are a hill I'll die on. But sacrilege of ultimate sacrilege, this weekend I did found, find a flavored coffee drink I liked. Oh, what is it? It's actually called, uh, it's made by Coca-Cola, and it's just Coca-Cola and coffee. <laughs> <laughs> and it takes it, nothing it, 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 it comes in a it, it comes in a like red bull style can one of them skinny cans and you open it up and it just basically tastes like carbonated coffee why does this exist but at the end you get a little coke aftertaste yeah uh, cocaine hopefully <laughs> i mean you know lord knows there's not enough time in the day for me to do what i want to do so hopefully but i will say in my defense i drank at room temperature i didn't drink it cold so How i'm, I'm sticking you. to my guns <sighs> all right let's get, we get into the F1? fucking topic before you ruin more <laughs> more people's dreams it's what i do baby that's why i'm here um <laughs> All right, so uh, last week we talked at length, well, I say we, I talked at length about Formula One because I'm a little obsessed. Yeah, I'm just going to uh, go get my Switch. I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, you know, we covered the history of it. Uh, we tried to condense 115 years of open wheel racing into 75 minutes or whatever the fuck it ended up being. This week we're going to pick up roughly where we left off at the uh, end of the 90s into the 2000s and just talk briefly about the run-up to today. And then we're going to talk about F1 more specifically in America because the end of the 80s into the 90s all the way through you know, the early 2000s and the beginning of the new 10s, F1 was just, it was the shits here in America. It was not popular. People like me were ostracized and had things thrown at them. And now, little by little, it's on its way back up. And that's why Nick is here, because Nick is one of the new converts, and he's going to tell us what his thoughts are as someone who has come in during the Liberty Media era. So I guess maybe Liberty Media stuff is working, but we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. <clears throat> so we left off the end of the 90s, the early 2000s, somewhere around there. And basically, from 1997, well, pretty much still to this day, actually, there has just been one rule controversy after another. Uh, 97 had the narrow tracked groove tire regulations, both of which have since been uh, reversed and undone, where basically they made the cars skinnier, but then they actually made them run. They called them slicks, but they weren't slicks. They had treaded treads in them. And I mean, no racing series where it's salt runs treaded tires. I mean, that's just a joke. And to have the pinnacle of motorsport running tires with grooves in them, it just looked absolutely ridiculous. 
Uh, a little bit later on, you had the square tire controversy in 2003 when Michelin was actually making a squarer tire where the sidewall actually kind of had a little pointy cap to it, and they ruled that that was illegal and basically ruled that tires had to be round, which was kind of why, a fun little rule why change. Is it, why is it basically what? had to do with the way it was the way it came out of the mold. And then that way, when it wore down at the time, they were measuring the because this, again, was during the grooved tire regulations. So you could only have so much uh, rubber because the grooves had to be so big. So you could only have so much rubber contact patch that was actually touching the track at the time. But they were measuring that after the race. So the Michelins, when they came out of the mold, were almost square, and they had like a little overhang on the sidewalls, which gave them more of a contact patch. But during the race, it would burn off, so they would be round, and they would be legal when they measured them during the race. It actually was pretty ingenious. But wouldn't that, like, cause a lot of bumps? Uh, well, I mean, keep in mind, the suspension on a Formula One car is stiffer than all get all to begin with. So the drivers get the shit beat out of them either way. That was 2003. 2005, we had the mass damper controversy where uh, Renault hung a magnet inside of a sealed vacuum tube, and that basically allowed them to take some of the aero load onto a spring. I still don't exactly know how that one worked, but it involved magnets in a vacuum, and that was really, really cool. Then the FIA said, no. Science! Uh, <laughs> yes, science. <laughs> 2007 saw Spygate, where uh, McLaren actually got the entire 290-some page technical dossier for Ferrari's car that year. And what I love about this story is uh, a disgruntled Ferrari employee was fired. He stole the documents, went to McLaren, gave them to a McLaren higher up, who then said, oh, people will recognize me, and gave them to his wife. And instead of just you know going to Best Buy or somewhere and buying a scanner... She went to a Kinko's, and she said to the kid, copy all this. And she had all these blueprints and everything that said confidential and four eyes only, had Italian writing all over them. And the kid was an F1 fan, and he actually got on the phone down to Italy, down to Marinello, and said, hey, I think something's up here. <laughs> but I would just love to have been the secretary at the factory in Italy. Some kid from a Kinko's keeps calling. He has our blueprints. I don't understand. <laughs> It's my favorite part of that story. I do love that story. I, I'm familiar with that one. I love that. <laughs> That's, it's like the best. And they ended up getting fined $100 million for it. So crime doesn't pay, kids. Hopefully some of that money went to the Kinko's kid. Uh, I actually think he got to tour the factory. I think I heard a story that they brought him to uh, Luca de Monticello, who was the head of Ferrari at the time. I think he brought him down and he got to tour the factory and they gave him like a hat or something. Uh so that was 07, 09, we had the double diffuser controversy, which basically was a trick little thing using the hole for the starter motor that let more air underneath the Braun Grand Prix car. Uh, they lasted one year, but they won both championships during that year, and then they sold out to Mercedes. Uh, and then, you know, a few years later, we had the uh, V6 hybrid regulations in 2014, which is what we're still running today and the dominance of Mercedes, which we'll talk a little bit about in a minute. Uh, also in there, at the turn of the century, you had the return to power for Ferrari. Uh, they had not won a driver's championship since 1979 with Jody Schechter. They had won a few constructor's championships in the 80s and 90s. Should have won a bunch of driver's championships. People thought they were cursed. I mean, they actually had a few drivers get killed, and then they had some, you know, just mechanical problems and things like that. But finally, in 2000, Michael Schumacher broke the duck uh, 31 years later, and so they won 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003, 2004, and then 2007. And as Ferrari goes, so does Formula One. I mean, whether you like Ferrari or you don't, they're a lot like the New York Yankees. I mean, I'm a Red Sox fan, but baseball is just more interesting when the Yankees are good. What, I mean, what, they suck this year, and it's just like, eh. Why is there a duck? Because it goes quack. But he broke a duck. He did break a duck, and I don't, I don't think he should have, but he did. Wait, why did he break a duck? How did he break a Did he run over a duck? No, he hit him with a bottle. Why? It was a champagne bottle. I, is this a reference I'm not getting? 
It's if break your duck it actually means you end a long streak. I don't know the etymology of it. I don't know the history of it. Uh. But it's it's a saying for if you're in a long dry spell, if you are in a long losing streak, if you've just had a run of bad luck and then something good happens, you break your duck. Interesting. I, I've never heard it either, DJ. So. Okay, I, I was. Don't worry. Go, one of you fuckers, Google it right now. I'm telling you. <laughs> uh, Breaking the, the quack. The duck, not the quack. Duck. Breaking the buck. <laughs> yeah, it's the buck. Well, so, you, that was a good segue there. Talking it's about from, breaking the from buck. Cricket, cricket, where duck means a score of zero. Okay, well there you go. I've never watched a match of cricket in my life, so I didn't know that's where it came oh, from. Oh, that's a fascinating sport, by the way. Well, we'll we'll get into it a different time. <laughs> well, that's good. You could be our expert for that because I have never watched <laughs> any cricket. Uh, so around this time, you also had the budget budget explosions, which I was uh, I mentioned very briefly at the end of the last episode. In the early two thousands, Ferrari was spending about five hundred five hundred and fifty million dollars per year to field two cars on track. Uh, Toyota had a factory team at the time. They were spending over $800 million a year. And the difference was Ferrari won. (laughs) Toyota never did. (laughs) They ended up leaving the sport in disgrace. I mean, because you had all these major manufacturers come back in. BMW was back. Honda was back. Toyota was back. Uh, Mercedes did not have the factory team as it exists today, but they owned a chunk of McLaren. So McLaren was the factory Mercedes team for a long time. Ferrari was a factory team. Renault was a factory team. And the cost just went through the absolute roof. I mean, you had to spend well into the nine figures just to be competitive. And eventually, 2008, the budget crisis hit. Honda pulled out. Toyota pulled out. BMW pulled out. All in the span of a few weeks. And the sport was looking very bad because you couldn't... The days of guys like us hammering a car together in a shed were over. I mean, you needed $100 million basically to make it on the grid. So that was when you first saw the proposal for a budget cap. It came about in 2009 where, uh, for the 2010 season when we got the first wave of new teams. It ended up actually not going through, but the threat of a cap coupled with the fact that they had lost three major manufacturers, coupled with the fact that they opened the tenure up for three different team, new teams, it did indirectly lower the price to pay. Now, it was still in the nine figures. It uh, was still very high, but they brought it down a couple hundred million. And the three new teams, I mean, they all had a budget of less than $100 million. Now, they were they always kept bringing up the rear, but the fact was you could compete for a whole season for less than $100 million, and that was the goal. Now, this current year, 2021, is actually the first year with a budget cap. Now, it's not a true budget cap because you're allowed to pick any five individuals on the team and their salary does not count. So Danny Ricardo's making $40 million over at McLaren. That's not included in the budget cap. Nice. Uh, but because of that, it's about 185 for this year and then it's going to go down over the next couple of years to 150. And it's interesting because of some of the bigger teams. Ferrari, for example, they have started a Le Mans project, a sports car project, because they said $150 million is so little of the money we're spending, we're either going to have to lay off half of our workforce or go build a whole other car for another racing series. So that's what they decided to do. Wow. Uh, The last big thing that you can't talk about when you talk about the modern era is just the absolute domination of Mercedes. They came in... Into, well, they came in as a factory team in 2010, did nothing 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013, put all their eggs in the regulation change basket for 2014 with the V6 turbos. We had turbos again, not since 1988, but 2014 they came back, and they have just steamrolled everything. Going into this year, they, won, they had won 47% of the races, uh, they had 81% of all pole positions, something like 74% of all podiums and 74% of all fastest laps. It's just been absolutely ridiculous, and the ratings are in the toilet because it became a matter of who was racing for third. And it wasn't even like previous seasons were not so much Ferrari, but when Braun was running or when uh, McLaren was running in 07, 
they would let their drivers race. So, you know, okay, well, we have, there's only two cars that could win, but at least there's two cars. Mercedes-Benz doesn't do that. Lewis Hamilton's the number one driver. Uh, Valtteri Bottas is the number two driver, and he's just not allowed to compete, and he's not allowed to win. You come second, and you get the big check, and that's the end of it. And that's happened a lot in Formula One history. Ferrari did it for a while, but at least for Ferrari, when they were doing it, they had competitive teams. Williams was competitive. McLaren was competitive. Renault was competitive. Mercedes just has nobody. Until this year. <laughs> this year, the fizzy drinks company has come out. Red Bull. They have a better space program than NASA, or at least they did for a while <laughs> when, they were, when they had that guy jumping out of satellites. And they have a better racing team than Mercedes-Benz. God bless them. So that's where we're at now. We're, what, eight races now into the 2021 season. So we're all caught up. Now, we'll talk just a little bit about F1 in America. As I said, it was the shits in the late 80s, early 90s. Why was it the shits? Well, it was a combination of reasons. You go back and look at all the places F1 has been in America. Uh, Indianapolis on the Oval, Sebring, Riverside, uh, Dallas Street Circuit, Detroit Street Street Circuit, the Long Beach Grand Prix, Watkins Glen. God, I know I'm forgetting a lot. The Las Vegas parking lot outside of Caesars Palace. They had all these different places. Well, uh, finally, they in 1989, they went to Phoenix. They ran a street race through the middle of Phoenix. Somebody got the bright idea to run a street race at Phoenix in June. Jesus <laughs> It was a hundred and some degrees in the stands. They had like less than 50,000 people when they were expecting double that. The next year for 1990, they moved it to March. And it actually became a, a fairly competitive race. John Alacy and Ayrton Senna had a great race. It's on F1 TV. If anybody has it, you can go back and watch it. But they were down to somewhere only 20, 21,000 people. The final year, 1991, and this is an actual fact acknowledged by the Formula One Association, the 1991 race was outdrawn by an ostrich festival. <laughs> <laughs> and after that, they just said to hell with it. You know, they had been bouncing around to all these different tracks. They couldn't make it stick. Uh, Watkins Glen was really the only one that ever had any consistent popularity, but the track at the time was very unsafe. And the fans were crazy. I mean, I forget what year it was, 75, 76, maybe it was a little bit later but they burned a Greyhound bus in the infield. And you could actually watch on the video as the cars go around, you could see the smoke coming up from the infield where they were burning a bus. What? So, yeah, so the FIA cool. was sick of it, and we had no race at all until 1999 when we went back to Indianapolis, but we weren't racing on the oval. We were racing on a road course set up on the infield, what we call a roval. And a Roval is, you know, everybody shit on the Indy Roval. And, yeah, okay, it was a little Mickey Mouse, especially turns 9, 10, and 11. They kind of sucked. I'm not going to sit here and defend those. But, a ro one, you're at the birthplace of American motorsport. You're at one of the greatest, most historical tracks on earth. And a Roval is a distinctly American tradition. I mean, there are tons and tons and tons and tons of ovals in America. And most of them have infield road courses. Homestead, Miami, Daytona. Texas, uh, Indy, Pocono, my home track. There's an infield road course. The only one I can even think of in Europe off the top of my head is Rockingham. Rockingham is a similar setup. But it's just a distinctively American flavor. And so they ran there for a few years until 2005. And 2005 is the biggest black mark on America, on American racing and on Formula One. Uh, they had 20 cars that entered for the race. And just before the first lap, 14 of them pulled out. And so they were on the warm-up lap. They were just getting ready to start. There's only six cars. They ran a six-car Grand Prix. And it was Ferrari, Jordan, and Minardi, which basically today would be like Ferrari, Williams, and Haas. Actually, so no. not competitive we, at all. Right. Actually, I take that back. It'd be like Mercedes, Williams, and Haas. Yeah. And... People were throwing things on the track. People were booing. It led to an actual, in Europe, a, uh, what's it, the, the court at The Hague, the world court. They actually investigated it to see what was going on. And the official reason is tires. Michelin didn't bring tires that were good enough, yada, yada, yada. Entire podcast, multiple hour-long podcast episodes and multiple hundred-page books have been written about this. But the actual 
truth is it was political. They were trying to the teams were trying to put more pressure on the FIA. The FIA wasn't buying it. They called the teams bluff and the teams all pulled in at the last minute. And they knew they weren't going to race as early as Saturday because Toyota put so you, at the time you had to qualify the car with the race fuel in it with how much fuel you wanted to put in at the time because you could refuel during the race back then. And Toyota had so little fuel in the car when they were talking about potential solutions for Sunday morning and they were talking about changing the track, they said, well, if we do this, we'll have a warm-up session on Sunday morning. And Toyota said, no, we can't do that. We only have about a lap's worth of fuel in there. <laughs> they just did a glory run because Toyota sells a lot of cars in America. They knew they weren't going to race. They sent Yarno Truly out to get pole, and he got pole. So after that, uh, F1 in America was just the shit. We had no race. Uh, went on two years more, 2006, 2007, and that was it. We had no race again. In 2009, there was an attempt to get the, a team off the ground, simply entitled USF1. They were sponsored by Chad Hurley, who is the founder of YouTube, and they were based in Charlotte, North Carolina, in NASCAR country. And they were run by a con man, and the car never existed. And it turned out that their composite engineers spent all their time making carbon fiber toasters. <laughs> uh, and a lot of their uh, equipment was seized for non-payment. And, you know, again, it was looking pretty shitty. But then, a few years later, it started to go up. And this is where we are now. You, 2012, you had the opening of the uh, Circuit of the Americas, or COTA in Austin, Texas, the very first track ever in American history purpose-built for Formula One. That's an okay track. I don't think it's as great as everybody says it is, but it's certainly the best one Formula One's ever been at in America, with the possible exception of Sebring. I like Sebring. Uh, they copied a lot of great corners. They strung them together, and turn one up that blind hill is brilliant. But it proved that people would come to an F1 race in America. The ticket sales are very stout. Now, the problem, and this is the reason why it's still in doubt, is it relies every year on $25 billion worth of government money from the state of Texas, which Texas, of all people, is giving out $25 million grants for a motor race, but nevertheless. Uh, but it has a contract for this year. It has a contract allegedly for next year. You know, that'll be, what, 11 years at that point. So hopefully, keep your fingers crossed, F1 has found a home there. 2016... F1 was sold, and crazy enough, it was sold to an American company. It was sold to Liberty Media, which is, you know, a lame American name. But four and a half billion dollars uh, to purchase F1, and they immediately set about, they wanted to make F1 relevant in America. This was their number one goal. So you see a lot of focus on COTA, on the American race. They brought a race back to Mexico City because that's not super far from the U.S. border. That's a great track. When there's not a raging pandemic, a lot of people can go down and watch a race there. They worked on getting new TV deals with U.S. networks, because TV for the U.S., God, we won't get into that. They started F1 TV, a streaming service, where you pay $79 a month. I have it, or $79 a year, rather. I have it. I buy it every year. And you get every single race, on demand, every single practice session, every single qualifying session. They have their own show, different goofy shows on there. And more importantly than not, they have old races. All the way back to the 70s you can watch. And you can watch different in-car cameras and different streams and all that. And while it's a worldwide thing and you can listen to the commentary in something like 20-some different languages, it really was more focused on America, especially at first, because here... Now you don't have to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning when they're racing in Singapore. Now you can just watch this on demand. Just don't look at your phone for an hour. You don't know who won. Watch this. That's awesome. And then the last piece, and this is where Nick's going to jump in, I believe, because he had already mentioned <coughs> it, was they signed up with Netflix. And they mm -hmm. created a show. Uh, the first season was 2019 for the 2018 season called Drive to Survive. And it is a great behind-the-scenes documentary. Formula One during the Bernie Ecclestone era, we talked a little bit about Bernie last episode. It was so closed down, nobody could get in, nobody could see anything. They led year after year after year. They led YouTube in trademark violations and takedowns. 
nobody took more stuff down than F1 for over a decade. <laughs> and now under Liberty, they're like, no, hey, you want to see the driver swear? So do we. We're going to put a camera in their face. <laughs> so, Nick, you, you jump in here. That, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but is that how you found F1? Yes, that's exactly how. So it's actually a really, a, you know, such like a coincidental, like, you know, happening that I even found it at all. So a podcast that I was listening to, this guy was talking about, oh, I was sitting in this room with somewhat, somewhat, the teachers are important. I was just like, we were sitting around in like this house and we were watching Netflix Drive to Survive. And I was like, oh, like, I'm looking for a new show. I'll start to watch it. And because of watching the first four or five episodes, I'm like, I became fascinated by F1. And because as a kid, a little pick back up for a second. I, as a kid, I watched NASCAR. You know, I, I, I watched the Jeff Gordon era. Like, I I wasn't, like, a huge fan, but I would watch it because it was an American sport. It was it was fun and all that. But there's, like, 50 drivers. There's 43 drivers in that. The, what drew me into F1 is that it's, 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 it's uniquely not American. And I say that, you know, you know, as a soccer fan, right, in, in the Premier League, there's only three teams that are ever going to win. And, you know, and, and then there's the one in 200 chance that's, you know, some other team wins. But, like, you pretty much know who the top five or six teams are going to be in, in the Premier League. But there are teams who are happy to be 10th out of 20 or 14th out of 20. And that's how F1 works. It's like, you know, right now, there's only like two teams going into the season. Going into the season, maybe there's three or four. But then it, it works out after the first couple of races. There's only like two teams that are going to win. But there's so many other teams that are like, I'm happy to just get three points over the course of a 23 race season because last year we got zero and that's an improvement and like it's just it's fascinating that way it's like there's the politics obviously the sport's really exciting but it's more just that it's not like if you don't win you're not good like that's like baseball football hockey like there's so much emphasis on playoffs they changed nascar to include a playoff format because that's that's what we do in america you have to have a playoff you have to have a tournament at the end of the season right no, yes. F1, it's different. It's 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 the long haul. It's the grind. It's so much. It's just I'm so fascinated by it right now. You know, you mentioned politics. The great Colin Chapman, who was the founder of Lotus, who, you know, they won a bunch of world titles in the 70s and the 80s. He has the famous quote, Grand Prix racing is backstabbing and political intrigue followed every two weeks by a motor race. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just so true. <laughs> so... Okay, so you mentioned, you know, NASCAR, you mentioned the different sizes. What else, compared to NASCAR, what else really fascinated you? You know, I mean, obviously the, the technology is, is a lot, you know, higher, but what, you know, compare and contrast the two, like what really, what really drew yeah. you from NASCAR to F1? So it's the, it's the tracks. Everything's a road course. And it's, it's, you know, the oval is like, okay, whatever, I get it. But it's the idea that, you know, you can be happy supporting a team or supporting a driver, and if they finish fifth place out of twenty, that that might be a good result, and you're happy with that, right? But no, it's it, the first. You know, the thing was, like I said, the, the courses, the courses being road courses with thirteen to twenty-two turns, the chicanes, the hairpins, and then the long straightaways. Like it's just such a dynamic race. And as I looked more into it, as I you know learned more about the sport, you know the drivers have this ultimate control. Like the the steering wheel has forty buttons on it, and they can make these adjustments on the fly. It's it's not just like I sit in the car and I drive the car. I press the pedal and I drive. You know I, I turn the steering wheel. There's so much more to it. The strategy and you know you have to let the car cool down, and you know then you have to, then you can build up power and like all the different mechanics of it. Like I'm starting to dive into the science of it now. And the different engine components and how they all work together. It's just, I'm, I'm enthralled by everything I can, all content I can, you know, uh, absorb is just so fascinating to me about the whole sport. And, you know, that that is interesting how you mentioned the road courses. Because uh, I have liked IndyCar since I was a little kid. And IndyCar... Never is, but they try to be 50-50 ovals to road courses. But usually it's like 60-40 or 70-30. More road courses, more ovals. But they do both. Since I've been an adult, since I've gotten out of college, really, I've started watching NASCAR. And this year, they had ten road, nine or ten road courses on the schedule. The most they've ever had. And a friend of mine, 
who is a absolutely just NASCAR freak. When the schedule came out back in March or January or whenever the hell it was, he texted me and said, boy, you're going to be happy. They got all them damn road courses you like. And it's just, I always thought it was interesting that there's such a dichotomy between oval fans and road course fans. I guess because I grew up with IndyCar and they've always done both. So it's like, well, yeah, but, you know, why don't, why don't we do everything? Like, I would love to see F1 take on an oval. I mean, they will die. They will have G out and they will black out. It would it'd be like that champ car race. <laughs> no, the champ car tried something similar in Texas back in 2003, I think it was. It ended very, very badly. It's, you could look it up on Wikipedia. but And they, they weren't anywhere near as fast as the current F1 cars. So the drivers would just die, which isn't good. But, I mean, if, if it could be done safely, I would love to see it. But there is an interesting sort of back and forth between the oval fans and the road course fans that I find very fascinating. Uh, so, okay. So, you know, both of us, uh, me for two weeks, you for the last, you know, five, ten minutes or so, we've all been gushing about F1. Is there anything you don't like? Um, well, I mean, I, I do like that there's going to be changes coming, like even stricter changes in the sense that it'll, there'll be more balance among the teams. You know, I, I, as I follow the sport more and more, and as I'm getting deeper into like, you know, now I'm in season three of drive to survive, there's these things like, you know, uh, uh, George Russell is a great example, right? So for those who don't know, and, and Mark, obviously you're going to know more about this than I will, but George Russell's a young driver on a team that's towards the bottom. Like they're in the bottom three Williams, right? But for multiple years, and also partly because he's like an academy product of Mercedes, but for a couple of years, he's been tagged as the next Mercedes driver. But it's like, how do you really know, right? Because like he's in a bad car and he's not he's not winning, but he but because he's young and people think that he's going to be really successful, that now he's like the next hot thing. You saw it with Max Verstappen on Red Bull. You saw it with Lando Norris and McLaren. It's like this idea that... Uh, Almost every team, with the exception of probably Mercedes, has the veteran and the really young, unproven guy. And there's that, like, dynamics of, like, you know, when is the young guy going to surpass the veteran? And in a lot of cases, in a lot of teams, the young guy already has done that. But, like, that's something where it's, like, it's, like I said, I, the, the, there's a stark contrast between the first team and the tenth team in the, in the series. And I, I'm looking forward to when they can... Obviously, they're not going to be equal, but similarly um, equipped with tools in terms of budgeting. So that way, you know, you can actually, you know, maybe better compare, you know, it's instead of being the top two, the, you know, three through five, and then everybody else, maybe there's like the chunk of you know, in the middle is going to be more like four to eight, right? So it's like top three teams, bottom three teams, everything, you know, the four in the middle. You know, it might create some more competition, some more intrigue. Yeah, and I mean, if you look back historically, after every major rule shakeup, there always has been a, a joker in the deck, so to speak. Uh, 1994, after they banned a lot of the driver's aids and everything, you saw Benetton rise to the top. That's right, folks. A clothing store had their own racing team. They built their own purpose-built cars. <laughs> that always blows the wife's mind, because she still has Benetton shirts and things. Uh, but in 1994, Benetton rose to the top. Uh, 19, end of 1997, 1998, with the change to the groove tires that we said, uh, McLaren came to the forefront. Uh, Renault took advantage of the one-tire rule in 2005. The uh, switch to the high wings and the, the wide fronts saw Braun with a double diffuser. And then with the change to the V6, you saw Mercedes. So I expect someone new to show up next year. I have no bloody idea who it's going to be. <laughs> but I imagine there'll be somebody up there. And, I mean, Mercedes and Red Bull aren't just going to go away. Uh, oh, no. You know, so th they're going to be there. But I think there's going to be a new third player. You know, is it going to be McLaren? Is it going to be Ferrari? Could it be somebody totally Williams? Who knows? You know, you don't know. Honestly, I mean, if we can get into it, I'm kind of expecting Alpine, you know, slash Renault to, to make a comeback. I think that they, you know... It, I don't know. I mean, like they've, they they were good for such a long period of time. They've had a lull for the last what three years or so, two three years. I mean, maybe that's maybe this is what they need the the the, the highest spenders to be brought down towards the middle. And obviously, they supply a lot of the engines for you know at least they used to for you know some of the better teams. But I think maybe Alpine will come back. I think they will too. I think the quote unquote experts are shitting on Alpine a little unfairly this year because you have to understand their base chassis is three years old. You know, like, okay, you look at Red Bull, they're running last year's chassis with a few modifications. 
Uh, you look at McLaren, same thing. You know, they have the MCL, what is it, 23M or whatever. So last year's chassis with a few modifications. Renault were running last year's chassis with a few modifications, but last year's chassis was the year before's chassis with a few modifications. <laughs> so yeah. they're running a three-year-old car. And I'm sorry, but when you have guys building new shit, not just every year, but every month, you know, race to race, developing stuff, and you're running something that's three years old, no, it, they're going to be where they are. I think next year, I think you're right. I think they're going to come back. So, all right, TJ, where are we on time? Is it lightning round time? I think it's lightning round time. All right. I already answered these last week, so you and Nick have at it. All right. <laughs> excellent. Nick, you ready? Uh, I guess I am. All right. Favorite. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Explain the rules of the lightning round to him. It's a lightning round. Just answer quickly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I kind of assume that, Mark. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I always say it's more word association, but sure, fine. Okay, I'll stick. Shut up. Go ahead. Damn it, Mark. You've talked enough. Nick, I have. Favorite driver? In F1? Yes. Lando Norris. Favorite team? Uh, McLaren. Favorite car? Uh, we, uh, define car. Uh, like in, like. It has four wheels. No, <laughs> we established last week Terrell built a six-wheeled car. No, just F1 car in general. It doesn't have to be a current one, but just from watching Drive to Survive, watching old YouTube, whatever car fascinated you. Oh, they're all the same to me, which is such a shitty thing to say. <laughs> all right, favorite track? Oh, Monaco. Uh, favorite sponsor? Um, I, I kind of like Force India because of their, their former... Uh, leader uh favorite drink to to drink while watching f1 coffee it's on at 8 30 in the morning nice uh best win oh i think probably was it uh daniel ricardo in monaco in 2019 yeah that was a good one in red bull yeah that was a good one uh most impressive crash uh, when Daniel Ricardo crashed into Max Verstappen in, in Baku in 2019, just nailed yeah. his teammate because his teammate braked before he thought he would. Nice. Uh, most embarrassing moment in uh, F1. And, Not, it any, doesn't have to be personal. Yeah, anytime uh, Lance Stroll talks about his dad. Oh, <laughs> I mean, it's true, but that's harsh. Uh, why isn't Dave Erpel your favorite? Wait, what? Wait, who the fuck is Dave Erpel? You know, Dave Erpel, I think is Sunrise 2. Dave Erpel the second. Are you fucking trying to say Dale Earnhardt, you twat? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Dap Erper. Okay, okay, first off, I never liked Dale Earnhardt, senior or junior. And I didn't like junior because of senior, but that was because I was a Jeff Gordon fan. Oh, okay. So not a fan of Dap Erper. Nope. Now, see, you asked me about Jeff Gordon last week. You should have saved that for this week, you smart ass. <laughs> All right, so you heard it here first, folks. Nobody on this podcast likes Dole Airport. <laughs> Dole Airport? <laughs> That's well, the end of done? the lightning I, round. I, I think we're done. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> All right, so a big thank you to Dick for joining us. You know, he's Italian, so if we wanted to play <laughs> with those hurtful... Did you just say Dick or Nick? I heard Dick, too. Nick. I heard, no. I heard Dick. <laughs> to Nick. I did not say Dick. Which one of us is drinking the 100 proof? <laughs> <laughs> Me. No, I, I was going to make the joke if we wanted to go with the hurtful stereotypes, since he's Italian and he's a gangster, he'd be Nicky T, big Nicky T, <laughs> for, for joining us this week. Uh, to talk, you know, more about F1. And uh, we're going to bring him back on for cricket and for soccer, apparently. So, you know, well, God only knows when that'll be. But just pencil us in for, what, 15 weeks from now when season four is. Yeah, thanks for joining <laughs> us this week, Nick. This was a lot of fun. Absolutely. This was a great time. Yeah, I had, I had a blast. Thanks, guys. Uh, be sure to follow the Wit & Whiskey cast. We're on our 24th platform now. We're on Audible now. Woo! So, and we're free, so you don't have to pay for us. I know Audible, they like to nickel and dime you, but we're free. I made sure of that, so. That puts uh, us right up there with, you know, Dickens and, and Edgar Allan Poe and Shakespeare and the Wit and Whiskey cast. Fucking A right. <laughs> uh, you know, so we're on there. Just like us, subscribe to us, uh, listen to us on whatever your preferred platform is, because we get the data on the end. Uh, and if you're on iTunes, give us a shout out, give us a rating. 
you know, uh, tell us what you want to hear for a new topic. Uh, tell us what PD drinks DJ needs to drink next week. Or non PD drinks. No, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> um, so we have that. We are on YouTube. We are on Gmail. We are on Facebook. We are on Instagram. We are the Wit and Whiskey cast. Uh, no H in Wit, but there is an E in Whiskey. Oh, you got it. That's like two times in a row now. It's not funny. I don't have the gag anymore. It's not I funny it's anymore. It's so good. So, you know, email us, follow us. Uh, we'll have different posts and photos and different things. Big shout out to Nuno Henry Silva for our intro and outro. As always, we love you, Nuno. Love you, buddy. And we'll send you to his SoundCloud as well. Uh, DJ, what the fuck are we going to do? I've dominated the show for the last two weeks. So what do you want to do next week? Well, I think we can make next week a little bit more contentious. Oh, go on. I think we should do our first unwritten rules episode. Okay, on? Martinis. Oh! I think next week should be Martinis and Whiskey, and it's going to cover unwritten rules and common disagreements in cocktail culture. I am all about it. Nick, quickly, shaken or stirred? Uh, Shaken. Oh, yes! Yes! Get out. <laughs> It's supposed to be shaken. That's it's the supposed joke of James to be Bond. stirred. James no. Bond was a heretic. No, the joke is that you would never stir a martini because it's supposed to like. That's the joke. Is that like no. he's saying something obvious? No, you're supposed to stir it so it doesn't dilute the drink. Oh, maybe I'm wrong then. No, you're not. Don't cave to him. He does this every week. He tries. <laughs> no, just the only way to counter DJ is with volume. <laughs> and I've been doing it for 45 episodes. And he's still, better argument. He still loses every time. And until next week, ladies and gentlemen, oh. cheers. Salute. <laughs>